Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Ship Talking. I'm Robbie, and I'm joined, as always, with Brandon. So, Brandon, what have you been up to this last week? Well, actually, this week, I spent some time figuring out how to live stream from my computer to Instagram, and I've actually been doing some Star Trek Online live streams specifically focused on ships, as you could probably imagine, and that's been a bit fun, engaging with the community over live stream. Wow, that sounds really cool. Good job. Yeah, it's been fun. What about you? Uh, We haven't heard about Sharky the Trekkie lately. How's Sharky doing? You know what? Our resident Trekkie has been doing wonderful. Um, His academy training has been coming along. He's definitely on track to make Lieutenant faster than probably (laughs) any other horse out there. As long as he makes Lieutenant faster than Harry Kim, right? Well, I think anybody at this point would make it faster. (laughs) Um, I think Tuvix would actually make it faster than Harry did. So, Uh, Well, on this week's episode, we're going to be joined by the incredible Dr. Margaret Weidekamp. She curates the Smithsonian Social and Cultural History of Space Flight collection. She's also part of a project that I think is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, which was the conservation of the 11-foot studio model of the Enterprise from the original series, and she actually oversaw its installation into the collection. We've got a great chat with her coming up that is about 13 minutes long, and of course we will upload the full chat up onto our Patreon, which runs about 36 minutes. We're going to review your submissions from last week's Community Queue and announce the new one. We're going to report back on the training plans you've been sending in for this week's All Hands on Deck drill after our chat with margaret and we'll also announce our special guest for the next episode i'm really looking forward to talking to dr weidekamp just because the fact that the smithsonian's contribution and collection on space artifacts is not only extremely well renowned but for a big nerd like myself it has so many great aspects that i can't wait to ask her about me as well wonderful so we are going to join our special guest in astrometrics shortly but let's first move into this week's community q segment and see what came in over the hailing frequencies from all of you. For this week's Community Q, we asked you all to share what your favorite ship battle or battle scene was and why. So first of all, Brandon and I definitely wanted to thank all of you for your great submissions. What was really nice about this week's Community Q was the fact that all of you provided battle scenes or segments from across the franchise, from movies, from the expanded universe, from the TV shows. So without further ado, let me go ahead and jump in to the first and the most widely recognized as the favorite battle scene. And that would be the Deep Space Nine episode, Sacrifice of Angels, which was from the sixth season's sixth episode. I was not surprised to see this coming through. It's what I would have picked as well. It is just absolutely epic. You get to see so many amazing ships and so many cool angles that we hadn't seen before, as well as armaments being fired. And what I really like about this episode, besides the sheer importance of this victory for Starfleet and for the Federation, is that... We really saw, from a tactical point of view, Cisco's sheer military genius, right? I feel like this is also one of the first times in Star Trek's history that we saw military strategy that paralleled real-life examples that had occurred in previous wars. For example, with World War II, World War I, we saw these desperate attempts to get past a front in order to invade or to recapture lost territory. So I just think that from a historical perspective, this particular battle scene was extremely 
extremely important. Yep. Mm -hmm. So besides Sacrifice of Angels, there is a couple other ship battles that you brought to our attention that you felt were really, really important that we highlight. So the first was the Battle of Mutara Nebula, which was seen in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and the legendary Battle of Wolf 359, which was in The Best of Both Worlds, Part 2, during The Next Generation. I love both of those. It's hard to pick one over the other. Briefly, I'll say that the Battle of Wolf 359 definitely had repercussions that we saw across multiple shows and multiple lives, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was an event for the Federation that they had not yet experienced. Yeah, if it wasn't going to be sacrificed, of angels it definitely would have been wolf 359 taking the lead for this community queue absolutely others that were frequently mentioned were enterprise versus the swarm ships in star trek beyond and first contacts opening battle against the borg lots of great submissions thanks everyone again we want to hear from you for this week's community queue which is we want to know what your go to warp command line or catchphrase would be so for instance picard's was engage we've heard punch it we've heard hit it what would be yours? Have we heard anybody yet say make it slippy? I, <laughs> I don't know. Is that is that a thing yet? Probably only entering slipstream. Oh, uh, sure. okay. Well, if yours is make it slippy, sorry if I stole your thunder. <laughs> so let us know your answers via email, website form submission, or even via Twitter. Uh, Robbie, I think I feel my comm badge buzzing. It's on silent mode, but I bet it's Dr. Camp down in Astrometrics letting us know she's ready for us. Let's get a site-to-site transport and go meet her. All right. Two to beam over. Doing the research, thinking ahead to the work that I knew that the museum was going to need to do on the model, I started really digging in the archives and one of the things that jumped out to me because I started my career as a women's historian and as someone very interested in gender and race in culture and society and politics is the ways that when people were talking about the model, they would say it. Mm-hmm. And when they were talking about the character, the Enterprise, of course, is a she, right? Yep. In the kind of naval convention um, that ships are she. And um, you would see people slipping from one to the other and how they were talking about the model. If they had been disappointed with the experience, say, in the 70s or early 80s, seeing the model on the museum floor, they would often say, you know, she looks terrible, hmm. right? Or she doesn't look like the memory that they have. And there's a way in which the Enterprise, it's a television star. Right. In all the ways that that celebrity is, which is kind of the amazement at being in the same room with the star. And at the same time, having this moment of saying, oh, they've gotten old. Right. When you get up close to them, they don't look like I remember them looking on my little glowy cathode ray tube in the late 60s and the 70s. And so really, I started thinking a lot. And I actually published a scholarly article about there are kind of two enterprises and they overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing. And one is this giant piece of wood with some plastic and metal and wiring that gets you the effect, um, the kind of the body. And the other is the character. Mm. Um, And those overlap, but they don't map entirely neatly onto each other. There's a sense of the Enterprise as bigger than that. If you look back, um, you know, B. Joe Trimble would talk about when she was signing and um, returning fan mail in the 70s, the ship would get fan mail. Yeah. And she He's signing pictures of the ship and sending it back. Thanks for watching. (laughs) So one of the things that the model lends itself to is one half of it, the half that faced the camera, 
which is at starboard side, right. is fully decorated, has all of the decals, has the windows cut out, has the capacity to for internal lighting. And then the port side, the left-hand side of the model, was never facing the camera. So they didn't decorate it. That's where all of the wires poured out of just naked little ports on the side wow. because that was going to be masked out in the processing of the physical film because this was shot on actual film. Right. And so that kind of two-sidedness of the two parts of the celebrity, the, the body and the kind of character, I thought worked really nicely for a 360 display of the model to be able to, on one side, talk about the Enterprise and Star Trek and what an important driver that has been in American and world culture. Absolutely. And on the other side, to talk a little bit about the magic of television making and what it takes to get a spaceship into your show in the late 1960s and what it took to physically put this model together and film it. And so I'm really pleased with what we were able to do with the exhibit because I felt like when we finished all of the conservation and lit the model and stepped back, all of a sudden everyone in the room she, yeah, the Enterprise, the character was kind of back in the room and, you know, oh, she's beautiful. Look at that. Um, and I thought like that said to me that we had done this right. That must have been an immense amount of pressure for yourself for being able to display her and individuals walking through and generating inspiration. You know, this Enterprise might be from the 60s, but there's a reason why you and the team have done all this work to get it to this place to be on display. I just think that story of inspiration and imagination has been a really important thread through the way that the National Air and Space Museum has displayed real aircraft and real spacecraft since before the museum's building on the National Mall opened in 1976. And so being able to put those things in conversation, to understand that the men who walked on the moon in the 1960s had been listening to and watching Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Right. And then when you go forward now to astronauts who are flying today, Many of them are science fiction fans in their private lives. And I have to say, if you were restoring it, there had to have been some creative tension that went into even looking at the paint that was going to be used and the coloring. Because, of course, you know, the Enterprise looks so different on television compared to its studio model. But then there's these uber fans that know that studio model and know that color grade. And there's whole studies done on the colors of these ships. Yes. And I now look at all of those internet things that go around, you know, is this dress, this color, that color, yes. these sneakers that color and I think oh you know let me tell you about color you know because I've lived that for years but one of the best things that I thought that I did when we were working on getting ready to do the work on the enterprise model was kind of two things and one was to go straight to the fan community and really try to be transparent talk to the fans about here's what we're doing we're doing a whole series of conservation projects for the Boeing milestones of flight hall so honest to goodness we had the enterprise on one one side of the conservation lab and the nose panels from the Charles Lindbergh Spirit of St. Louis on the other side. Oh, wow. And we were using the same kinds of techniques on both artifacts. So to sure. say, you know, this is what we're bringing to this project and to really draw as much knowledge as we could out of the fan base. And then also to go to the experts who have 
worked on every other enterprise that has been created for television and film. Mm -hmm. And I brought together uh, a special advisory committee that physically came to Washington, D.C., and we sat around a table and ran, you know, decals, windows, paint color, you know, do we want it internally lit or not? Uh, the Boussard collectors, the nacelle end caps, right. what are we going to do with that? And just running all of the details and being able to bounce all of those things around. Um, I have to say it was very funny. I ran into the director of the museum as I was putting all of that together and was talking to him about, I need to bring these experts in to work on this thing. Yeah. And he said, I thought that was what I was paying you for. <laughs> and I said, you know, what you're paying me for is to understand where I need to draw on. There's so much knowledge out there about this artifact. Let's get it in-house. Let's really run it to ground on every single issue. And then, you know, and then ultimately make the best informed choices that we can. When you are working on the restoration project and you're going over all these details, did you ever actually just wish you could make the model so big that you could walk in and actually be inside the enterprise? Have you ever thought about how fun that would be? I think a lot about the differences between the outside and the inside, because mm. I think that one of the richnesses around the Enterprise as a ship and as a character is when they created the model, they weren't thinking at all about what the inside was. Right. That was on the other side of the lot. And very quickly, those pieces start to get knit together. Mm -hmm. And from the making of Star Trek and that book, they start to show you these internal diagrams of like, here's how the bridge fits into the saucer. And that's part of Jeffrey's genius in the design is really thinking about visually each piece is going to look like it does something. Right. So it's not a pointy rocket from the 1940s, 1950s. It's not some undifferentiated flying saucer that you don't know where the propulsion is or where the people would go or how it would work. It has what uh, Mike and Denise Okuda have called an aircraft logic, mm -hmm. that you look at the piece and you think that's what that part would do. And it conveys meaning in that way, a sense of scale. What's great about the National Air and Space Museum is you do actually have pieces that they're life-size. It's got the Discovery Space Shuttle in there, the Lunar Module. But I'm not sure the last time you saw Star Trek First Contact, they talk about the Phoenix. So Zephram Cochran's first ship actually being in the Smithsonian Museum in the 24th century. So at some point I did the math and thought I won't still be curator when the <laughs> Phoenix comes in. Never say never. You but... know, they might let a very old, retired, hopefully emerita curator come back and just sit in the back of the room when some of the work is being done. There are real ways in which that whole scene was inspired by being on the floor at the National Air and Space Museum mm -hmm. and thinking about what some of the objects were, um, because there were conversations where the producers and writers were at the museum and thinking about that. I think that there's an important precedent set when Charles Lindbergh gave the Spirit of St. Louis to the museum, which is an aircraft that does not have a windshield. The right. engine is so big that they built the cowling straight up into the wing. It's part of the gift agreement that the door be open okay. so that people can look into the Spirit of St. Louis. So I would wonder if there's some way when we bring the Phoenix into the National Air and Space Museum, and that's going to be a whole engineering project of reinforcing floors and mm -hmm. thinking about how much torque we can put on a particular joist to get it into position. But I would wonder if there's some way that we could maybe give people some sort of gangway where they could 
could kind of walk right up to the edge of it and get to look in the uh, the windshield or have some sort of a version of the door open so that people could get a sense of what it is inside. That's part of the fun of being in a museum is thinking about how do you show it, not tell it, yeah. but then also all of a sudden the logistics of how do you get it on the floor and how do you make sure we don't break the floor mm -hmm. and how do you pull it with pulleys or winches to be able to get it upright and have it stable enough. And then when it has to be necessarily static and sitting there, how do we give people some sense of what this vehicle could do? And uh, you can tell us, we won't tell nobody, but has the Enterprise ever dropped while being moved or accidentally, you know, no. fell off? And... No, the Enterprise <laughs> is surprisingly stable and really beautifully balanced, right? So one of the things people always assume is must be mostly plastic and um, metal. And it's not, it's almost entirely wood. Yeah. The whole body bottom engineering hull is essentially staves like a barrel and then the neck is wood most of the saucer is a wood frame with some vacuum formed plastic on the top and the bottom oh yeah okay the fronts of the nacelles are rather solid and then they get hollow as they go back because if you keep the wood going solid all the way back it it falls over but it's a beautifully balanced, very stable build. It was built by Richard Dayton. And um, we have two supports under it, one right under the front of the engineering hull and then one at the back of it. And to be honest, you could put one stake, one point up into the body of the engineering hull in the hole that's already in it, that which is how it was put on its stand for shooting. And it'll stand perfectly kind of cantilevered with this giant saucer out the front and these big uh, nacelles out the back. And in many ways, that second support in the back of the engineering hall is really for the curator and not for the object. Mm. It's <laughs> because it's a little <laughs> nerve wracking just yeah, standing on one point <laughs> and thinking, really? For, you know, 10 or 20 years? Okay. Um, so uh, it's a wonderful piece of engineering because again, in the form of the ship, it's supposed to visually, as soon as you see it, you get this sense, this doesn't exist in 1G. Right. This is not just a spaceship, but a starship, one that's gonna be you know, zooming from solar system to solar system and looks in some ways like it couldn't exist well fully in Earth's gravity. Margaret, we know you have a lot of work to get done here in Astrometrics, and we're gonna let you get back to it. But before we do, we've got five rapid fire questions for you. I'm gonna read the question and we'd love to know the first answer that comes to mind. That sounds great. All right, your favorite Star Trek ship? Gotta be the original Enterprise, near and dear to my heart. Your favorite series? Deep Space Nine, really complex, gets a little dark. Your favorite captain? Oh, so Cisco and Janeway come running to the front of my brain at the same time, so I'm just gonna let them have a tie. If you were in Starfleet and were going into a career and you had to pick between command, science, and engineering, which would you pick? You gotta be command. It's always fun to be in charge. And since the 1701 is close to your heart, do you prefer 2009 JJ Enterprise or the original? I love the original. It's just such a fresh take on what a spaceship could be. And every ship after that had to answer that standard. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go ahead and let you get back to your important work in astrometrics. I see seven looking at you. <laughs> we do not want you to get demoted to one of nine. And Brennan and I are now going to move into this week's All Hands on Deck segment. Thank you. 
For this week's drill, we handed the community an intelligence dossier in regards to an urgent rescue mission. It read, Dr. Crusher was kidnapped from a medical conference on Cardassia Prime by a group of renegade Romulan extremists. You're the fleet admiral overseeing the rescue mission and need to deploy three ships. Which ships do you send? And we gave bonus points for including why. So you all had a lot of fun with this one. It was definitely enjoyable. What was actually really surprising was that of all the combinations that we received, there was one combination that was provided more often than all the other ones. And Brandon, we'll have to get your feedback on this. I really think that this is not shocking to me. So those three ships were the Sovereign class, which was what the Enterprise E was, Prometheus from Voyager, and the Defiant. Yeah, this combination makes sense, right? This is a rescue mission so you're going to need ships that can do reconnaissance you're going to need ships that can be there to clean up if needed and you're going to need that ship that probably has got quite a bit of diplomacy behind it right so we know the sovereign is a big ship it carries a lot of crew it's going to have an important captain behind it and probably someone that's going to be able to negotiate well or be able to clean up the mess if things get dicey you've got the prometheus which is there probably to show that you know, this is not to be messed with. Give us our doctor back uh, and we'll spare you, right? Um, And then, of course, the Defiant, which can cloak and go in and do a little bit of reconnaissance maybe before the other ships show up. And if things get dicey, these ships all have a ton of firepower, a lot of abilities and special characteristics to them that would aid in this kind of rescue mission, especially against Romulans. One thing that kind of comes to my mind, though, especially with the Defiant, is that this could lead to other problems, right? Mm, uh, true. Part of the terms of the Federation being allowed to use a Romulan cloaking device is that they're not allowed to use it in the Alpha Quadrant. So even though these three ships are getting sent to Cardassia Prime, we know that the Romulans are masters of espionage, have spies everywhere, have a really, you know, know what's going on. Um, I, it would be really interesting to see how this would play out on the political side of the Romulans finding out that this ship was being used, not in a time of war, Yeah, maybe they'd give us a little bit of leeway since, you know, their renegade extremists did the extraction of Dr. Crusher. You know, that's always a possibility. There were so many other awesome combinations that you provided to us, which were really great to hear and your justification for using them. We wanted to mention a couple of the other ships that were in these combos because they definitely could have been used extremely well for this mission. The first that definitely deserves to be recognized is the Crossfield class, which is what Discovery is. And a lot of you mentioned the fact that the Spore Drive would probably be an extremely useful piece of technology for this type of a mission. I mean, it makes sense in and out, right? Absolutely. And the Akira class... The Intrepid, the Galaxy, and the Luna, which is what the Titan is. Of course, I do have to point out the Brandon, one thing. It would be really interesting if the Discovery did pop up in the timeline of Dr. Crusher. It'd be really interesting to see how she interact with Dr. Stamets, right? I think there'd be some sass. Yeah, there would definitely be a ton of sass. Yeah. We would love to hear from you. Do you think that our dear Dr. Crusher was saved? Or do you think that she might be drinking Canar for the rest of her life? <laughs> Let us know. However, if you would like to participate in the weekly drills, we do announce them on our Twitter towards the end of each week. So do keep an eye out. Please do. Well, I think that's it for this week's show, but we are beyond excited to announce that none other than Robert Duncan McNeil, who played Tom Paris on Star Trek Voyager, will be beaming aboard next week's episode to talk ship with us. I'm so excited, not only because I grew up watching him on Voyager, but also because some of the most iconic parts of Voyager and Star Trek were with his contributions to creating the Delta Flyer in the show, Warp 10, and I think that, of course, we need to find out the most important thing of all time, which is 
how do we avoid turning into space lizards and <laughs> having babies with our manager? You know, I'd like to know the answers to this. Yeah, that's something probably important to avoid. As you all know, I'm a big Voyager boy. I don't know how I'm going to be able to sleep between now and then, to be honest. I know. I'm really looking forward to it also, and we definitely are excited to bring this content to you next week. Don't forget, hailing frequencies are always open. Head to our website at shiptalkingpod.com to transmit a message. And while you're there, check out our awesome merch. Wear our logo, send us photos of you sporting it in and about town or on your own ship. Make sure to click on the link to our Patreon at the top of the page and view the special benefits we're providing to patrons, including expanded chats with all our guests. You can also send us an email to hello at shiptalkingpod.com. We want all your feedback and comments in addition to your entries for the community queue and all hands on deck drill. And we're also on Twitter at shiptalkingpod. This is definitely one of the best ways that you can engage with us to let us know your thoughts on the show. If you vehemently disagree with us or you loved what we said, let us know on Twitter. We'll definitely get back to you on that. And of course, the best way to support us is to tell your Trekkie and Trekker friends about the show. They can find us on any and all podcast platforms just by searching Ship Talking Podcast or just send them to our website and they can get the direct links from there. All right. Well, until next time, you all stay safe, have fun, and make it slippy. (laughs) Adios. Bye.